Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When someone says, can you help my son? Can you help my dad? Or, or so-and-so's on life support, and, you know, we're thinking about calling the cops on him, and, you know, we're afraid he's going to die. I know what that person's feeling like. When I read a story about Johnny Manziel or some athlete that's in the weeds, and, and the public is saying, how could he throw away that career of his? Well, he's not making the decisions for himself, and he has no idea the severity of the situation I didn't. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. We are done with the French Open. We are looking forward to Wimbledon. But first, first uh, podcast this week is a little different. In Paris, I had the chance to sit down with Former French Open doubles winner Murphy Jensen. He won the title in 1993 with his brother Luke. And at the same time, he was beginning the the throes of addiction. Uh, Murphy has had an adventurous uh, last 25 years or so. He's battled addiction and now happy to say he is uh, not only in recovery, but he is one of the executives at a tech company that uh, helps those in recovery check their, their progress. We talk a bit about that. It's the we Connect app that uh, I encourage everyone to check out. We uh, hear a lot of issues in the in the tennis world. Addiction is, is not one that comes up very often, but this is a, a candid talk with an athlete who was, and, and for that matter, is still in recovery from, from substance abuse. Uh, Mur- Murphy was great to talk to. Uh, this, this gets pretty deep at times. Tried to stay out of the way and, and let him tell his story. Without further ado, here is Murphy Jensen. Why don't we start in 1993, and then we can uh, date ourselves to the present. What's it like uh, coming back here? We, we almost hit an anniversary, but 24 years ago, you, you won the doubles here. What's, what's it like coming back? Well, I look at my credential, and it says past, past champion. champion. And so I, I woke up in my sleep about 3 o'clock in the morning, and 
And I'm thinking, past champion, what does that mean? I'm chopped liver today? Um, I think I'm a current champion, but just maybe not on the tennis courts. Um, Good way to frame that. Yeah, but it kept me up last night. And then uh, it's absolutely magical to be back here in Paris. Um, This is where it all began with my brother and I. And and it even goes back to see Andre Agassi here. 1987, he's playing Mats Wielander in the semifinals of the French Open. I came over here to play some challengers. We ran into each other at McDonald's on the Champs-Élysées. And I'm like, Andre, my old doubles partner, you made it, man. What's it like? And he's like, dude, this is unbelievable. And a few years later, we win the French doubles. And he calls me and he's like, you know what it's like. What's it like? Welcome to the club. Uh, It's magical. You know, we got Rafa and Djokovic and the the tournament's in full swing and the weather, you never know. Um, You know, I'm coming with a different message today. A uh, message of hope, inspiration, uh, recovery. Uh, we, got, we got to build up to that. Yeah, uh, I know. Get out of yourself. Yeah, but, you know, I'm running around town. I, you know, tennis players come back to the Grand Slams. They sometimes play in the 35s and the 45s. And it truly is a very small community, a very small world. And it's uh, very much a class reunion for uh, old tennis players like me. I always like the story when you won this jump into your brother's arms after you win the title. What happens? Oh, my gosh. So two points. I'm serving 5-4 in the final set, 30-love. And I, and I walk up to my brother and I say, Buddy, I can't believe you know this. I say, Luke, uh, whatever happens after we win, please don't hurt me. Because in the quarterfinals, he said to me, You know, after we win this match, I'm going to tackle you like a big-time wrestler and pin you to the clay. And I'm like, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to serve two bombs. This is going to be over. These Germans are going home. And he goes, what are you talking about? You know, don't hurt you. We haven't won anything yet. So now I get tight. I double fault twice. Somehow I pull some forehand volley and break point down out of my butt. And we get back to deuce, get a match point. Now, at this point, I'm so afraid of missing double faulting and all that. Luke takes four overheads in a row to win the match. He comes over to hug me. I duck. He cracks me in the jaw, breaks my jaw, which led 10 years later to jaw surgery in a major TMJ situation. I drop. Now I'm cursing in 20 languages, which seemed to be the most, you know, should be the happiest moment of my tennis life. Turns into a very painful experience. You literally have a broken jaw when you get the trophy. Oh, yeah. And if you look at all the pictures, I have one hand on my face and one hand on the trophy. People think it's because you're incredulous. You can't, can't yeah. believe you've won. Yeah, Mr. Cool. Um, Mr. Dork, actually. <laughs> what, what happens after that? Uh, well, you're a Grand after, Slam doubles champion. The you're... truth is, prior to the trophy presentation, I just grabbed my stuff and started heading off the court. Because I had trained my mind and I had trained myself to think next point, next game, next match. And I was walking off the court. And the truth is I had never won a professional tournament up to that point. I won some challengers, but nothing on the ATP Tour. And it was the first win in my professional career. It just turns out to be a grand slam. And I didn't realize 
where I was. And Luke's like, hey, man, you need to get your trophy and your check and, and all this other stuff. And now you give a speech and drop my bags. I'm like, oh, of course. You know, now I'm all full of attention. And they gave the speech and um, my mother's crying, my grandmother's crying. It was, you know, tennis is a really, really big family sport. And uh, it was something that we all dreamed about. And, and following that, you know, you get your prize money, you get this little check, you get the big check, then you get the little check. And, um, I don't know what Luke ended up doing. We had a little celebration at the hotel, and in my dream, I promised one of the ATP tour managers he would take me to the band douche. And it's this famous nightclub where all the supermodels hang out, and we go to this place, and the guy's like, yeah, you know, you guys are bums, you can't get in here. And my friend says with the ATP, he says, this guy just won the French Open doubles. You gotta help him out. And he's like, do you have your credentials? You can't say, you can't say Google me in Yeah, you can't say Google me in 1993. <laughs> And so I, uh, he says, well, do you have your credentials? And I said, I don't. He says, do you have any ID to prove that you played? And I said, no, but I got a check. It was like, you know, oh, 500,000 nice. 500, French francs. And he's like, come right on in. And here's a $100 beer at your expense. And um, we had a great night. Turns out, a year later, I go back to this place. It's not even the bandouche. We weren't even at the place I thought I was at. You went to the counterfeit. Uh, the counterfeit bandouche. <laughs> yeah, I was at Lark, which is a good spot. Eli Nastasi used to hang out there, and um, I was in good company. But had a wonderful time. Came home, and I had no idea the magnitude and where the game of tennis was at that time with Pete Sampras, you know, the king of the throne, uh, leading the charge and. You know, re later on, Sports Illustrated wrote an article that said tennis was dead, and um, you know the Jensen brothers gave the game a big boost with their rock and roll tennis, high fiving, long haired, flamboyant lifestyle. You know, we became a center court attraction. When when did you uh, when did you first get a sense that maybe you weren't a hundred percent equipped to deal with this uh, burst of fame? Oh. That's a great question. Um, I think the the minute we go off that court with the trophy, I even journaled about it, um, sat in the locker room. In a locker room in tennis, if after a final isn't like basketball and hockey with teams going bananas and cracking champagne, it's just you or in doubles, you and your brother or your partner and your opponents. Someone's happy, someone's unhappy. And I remember absolutely feeling a lot of fear um, at that moment my hands were shaking um, because for me I knew what my brother and my our mother who was our manager at the time was capable of you know promoting us um, and and I, I just had this moment like holy smokes I'm gonna have to face the world in a way that maybe emotionally I'm not prepared you need for to stepping off the court Minutes after the match, you you had a sense that this could get this could get a little dicey. This could get big. This could get so big that I wasn't, you know, when you, when I look back at all those pictures early on, you know, my brother said, literally, when we're still on the court signing autographs as we're uh, before I went into the locker room, he said we're going to sign every single autograph and take every single interview. You know, he had played a few French Opens. He had been a doubles guy. He had been a really great junior player. This was his opportunity. And here I'm playing in my first French Open. And I knew my brother's passion and, and what he was capable of. I knew it, what, 
it meant to be brothers being unique and different um it actually was a really scary time for me did, did you have substance can i ask you did you have substance issues in prior to that? yeah prior to that so i would say my first um crack at realizing i i was a little different when i had gone out to parties and you know in college was at usc sophomore year um you know, I'm a member of a fraternity house. They, they, you know, fraternities typically get after it, the, the party scene. And at that point, um, I saw it get out of control. And, and I realized if I don't get out of here, I'll have no shot at a tennis career. And I, I left USC at that time realizing that I got to pull it together. My friends and my, my peers were Agassi, Sampras, Courier, Chang, Wheaton, Washington, and they had left school or didn't go to school and they were thriving. I'm like, I've got to get out of here. So I left school. I, I uh, pick up the, I wasn't, you know, there was no bottoming out, but I just realized then that I was different, but I didn't really right. get it. Um, and then it wasn't until maybe 94 or 95, just the workload. You know, my brother's dream was to play 52 weeks on the tour in a row and end the end it with uh, Challenger in Vietnam. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to burn out in a week at this schedule. And, you know, he was a grinder. He, I mean, he loved the hotel. He loved the hotels. He loved the airplanes. He loved the traveling and the digging. And, in, and the doubles game was about a third of the prize money at the time. And you never know when you're going to get your hits. So he, kind of like the lottery, he was like, you know, if you can't, if you don't play, you can't win. And so, you know, we were getting after it, and we were the first doubles teams to get appearance fees and things like that. And, you know, we got a clothing contract with Adidas. We had racket deals and watch deals and guitar deals. And, you know, we were getting after it. And we were willing to do everything that the single stars weren't willing to do to grow the game, the kids' right. clinics, the kids' days, the sponsorship stuff. And um, we got after it. What that did to me, it left me pretty wasted and worn out. And looking back, in retrospect, I, I know and see my motivation to play the game was to be with my brother. Is that right? Without question. This guy... It's funny. It's this, this story sounds so musical. Sounds, I mean, it sounds so much really? like rock music. No, there's a band, and we're friends. We get yeah. out on the road, and one guy is more intense than the other, and the other sort of can't handle the pace. And yeah. Some people take a liking to the, the performing and the travel and everything that goes with it, and other people have different motivations. It does um, sound like that. I mean, it sounds like a typical... You know, yeah, almost. rock band. Keith Richards, um, Mick Jagger. I, I, and I mean, the I girls remember, get on the road. Yeah, and, no, and all yeah. these complications, <laughs> and some members like it more than others, yeah. and the motivations don't quite align. We, I mean, re- I, we really like Spinal Tap in college. Maybe that had something go. to do with that. Um, the, uh, we can start quoting. Well, let's, um, <laughs> I, I still remember the... I, th- I don't think I was covering tennis yet, but I remember the story just as a, as a fan in school when mm-hmm. you... You went missing at Wimbledon was a, a, a shocking pre-internet headline. Yeah. What what happened? Well, you know that story um, remains to be seen um, or be told, not seen, but to be told. Uh, you know, in 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 full. Um, the night before, I'm you know we lost in our doubles, maybe the round of sixteen, and I'm in the quarters or semis in the mixed. 
and I'm playing with Brenda Schultz and McCarthy, and I and I run into Belinda Carlisle, beautiful gal. She's you know walking around the Wimbledon uh, Players Lounge and at the Sandwich Bar, and I'm like the go the go goes Belinda, the go goes right. Belinda, right. and, I, and she introduces me to her husband, and I'm like big fan, and she's like I've got a concert tonight, and I said oh my god, she's would you like to go? And I said I'd love to go, and uh, end up at a, she opened for James Brown. That's, that's, I should have known right. That's, that's a mixed doubles pair, right? <laughs> so she opens for James Brown and and uh, see the show. See James Brown. She introduced me to James after the show, and you know, like any normal adult, you go out and you have a few cocktails, and um, you think you're going to go home, and and it didn't turn out that way. You know, one thing led to another, and 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 prior to Wimbledon. There was maybe only one other time where once I started, I couldn't stop. I, did, I lost the ability of choice in the matter of how much I drank. And, um, and that was one of those situations where I was in no shape to go on the court the next day. And uh, I hit it. I hit the road. And I ended up in Scotland, actually. There's a, a, a quite elaborate story, uh, John, that we should get into another time because it, it's it's insane. I don't know how long this podcast. Got, I was going to say the beauty of podcasts is there's no time limit. If you want to, uh, well, take I, a, if you want to take a detour, do it. If not, we, you know, can, we but, can save it. So you know when I when I'm watching my, I'd save it because you know it's, it's an it's an elaborate, it's a unique story. I ended up in Scotland and I use Scotland as. Um, almost an alibi because I'm a big fisherman every year I get to Alaska and do my pilgrimage there and um, in my crazed alcoholic mind you know I needed a good alibi and I went to Scotland and then when I was exposed in paparazzi and whatnot I was I was pronounced kidnapped and missing during that championships and the truth is at Wimbledon when I realized that that I had lost control of um, my drinking and my situation and and there was no way I could perform on the court I, I, I was suicidal I was absolutely suicidal because the one thing that has given my family myself um, this this unbelievable gift of the game I, I absolutely crapped on it and that's how I felt um, and so you know that those were the thoughts going through my head at that time, and I somehow got back to the states. You know, I NBC. I had an interview with them prior to that night out with James Brown, and they were given the first interview, and we we're doing damage control, and you know, and I think that's when it really escalated. My my uh, disease uh, of alcoholism really escalated when I started covering up. And I, your, your brother knew. I mean, did, did guys know what was I going mean, on? Or? Not really, not really. I mean, my brother didn't really know. Um, they knew that I'd gone out, and like I, I mean, everybody was baffled. Agent was baffled. Brother was baffled. Family was baffled. Um, and you know, I tell you. Uh, the person that did know that it was no longer a party for me and going out and having a social life was my dad. When I was eight years old, um, my dad got sober and he was in recovery until the day he died. And um, he knew that um, 
you know, I was, I was struggling. He knew that I was a sick, sick guy, and he, he needed a reprimand. And you, you knew this too. You knew there was a genetic. I mean, you, you knew. You, I didn't. I mean, did you know this about your dad? I mean, did you? Well, yeah. I mean, when I was young, um, I remember that our home was uh, different. When he came back from treatment, it was a whole different, you know, I got to, you know, he's the greatest dad in the world, but he became super dad when he came back. And uh, it was absolutely magical that I had a guy that got it where friends and family that aren't, you know, alcoholics or addicts or people in recovery, they get it. You know, I know what it's like when I get a phone call today, I'll get to present day, when someone says, can you help my son, can you help my dad, or, or so-and-so's on life support, and, you know, we're thinking about calling the cops on him, and, you know, we're afraid he's going to die. I know what that person's feeling like. When I read a story about Johnny Manziel or some athlete that's in the weeds... And, and the public is saying, how could he throw away that career of his? Well, he's not making the decisions for himself. And he has no idea the severity of the situation. I didn't. I, I really didn't. And, I, and I, it, 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 I think there's something missing um, here where something, whether it's in, in, with treatment providers or um, with the support rooms, it... It takes what it takes, but the the I the disease of alcoholism or drug addiction, I, you know, I had a head that told me and hated the fact that there was something wrong with me, and you know, and it's going to hold on to this thing that I can control. I, I can control that little tennis ball pretty well, um, but this is something that was such a beast and such a monster that I had no control once I started. And then the guilt and the shame associated with the behavior of missing a match at Wimbledon or missing or, you know, disappointing my brother, who's my hero, or disappointing my mom and dad in my head. You know, they, you know, they, uh, you know, you, that, you that hear from people killer. too say like you also you you insulate yourself and isolate yourself and people people you otherwise would let in with other issues. Yeah, sure. With substance, sometimes you sort of close yourself off from people. You know, I have thought that I wish someone on the tour... Well, I, I want to ask you about that. I mean, where... Where was anybody? Where was anyone, exactly? I don't know, you know... I don't know this for sure, but you hear what you hear. Um, you know, I think Billy Jean may have subtly mentioned something to Elton John, and I played an event with Elton John, and... Oh, where I thought you were going with that. But, no, but right. he had mentioned, yeah. he, had, he had like joked that he was sober. And I didn't know anything about sobriety. I didn't know anything about recovery. I didn't, and, and, and maybe someone had said, hey, to him, maybe Billie Jean said, hey, have a talk with Murph. I think he's struggling. That was maybe the closest it got. And I don't know what Vetus's past looked like. And I know that I've heard that he was... You know, clean and sober when he when he passed and he had his life on track, he would have been a guy that would have um, come up and said, "Hey," um, but no one no one did. And um, you know, I I've met a you know run into a lot of the 
current players and, and players you know coming up in the last 20 years and and uh, we've connected the ones that are struggling have connected maybe not with substance abuse but struggling with being on the tour right. struggling with the lifestyle struggling with the road and um, you know their behavior on the court represents their potentially you know what they the image they see in the mirror and um, Let, let's well, we'll build up to the present, but I also want to ask you about you do not have a typical tennis backstory. You were not from uh, Boca or Southern <laughs> no. California. A sort of tell us about that, and B, do you think that's a factor in any of this that you you didn't grow up in sort of the Hollywood Hills with yeah access and exposure that that some of your peers may have? Well, I mean, we grew up on a Christmas tree farm in Northern Michigan. That's a fact, and. Uh, on a, with a salmon stream, and that's where my love of fishing came from. Um, we uh, parents were school teachers that sacrificed everything to get us to that next tournament. We didn't have Mercedes, and we weren't staying at the Ritz at these tournaments. And we we all um, absolutely banded together as a family to make our dreams come true. Um, but I don't think it, you know, one thing you'll hear repeatedly with pe- folks in recovery that, are, that have recovered from uh, uh, addiction or um, that stuff is I felt different than people around me. I felt, I definitely had that feeling of, I felt out of place, a little uncomfortable in my skin. That I, I'll tell you, a, a definite feeling I had was that I didn't measure up that I wasn't worthy. And, and when I sat in that locker room, I think, you know, what if they find out that my insides don't match up with my outsides? On the outside, I'm winning these and tournaments. Rock and roll doubles. Rock and roll doubles. And, and maybe there's an image i got to live up to. Um, but I really don't think it had anything to do with the, where the, I grew up. The culture up, shock the, of northern Michigan to suddenly you're in Monte Carlo. And Not at all. Okay. Uh, I kind of embraced that to a fault. <laughs> right. So, um, no, but it's uh, that, that those feelings, I think those feelings start on the playground um, as young kid. You know, I, I had a, a number of fears um, on the playground growing up and my brother protected me. My brother Luke has always protected me. My, I wouldn't be sitting with you here today, and I wouldn't have won the French Open, and um, I might not be alive today if it wasn't for my brother. So, when, when did you first get help, and what was? I mean, for for all the issues you hear about in tennis, and it's it's financial and performance enhancing drugs and match yeah. fixing, you don't hear a lot about substance. Uh, substance issues. I mean, you hear about substance abuse on isolated occasion, but you don't you don't hear about players that are dealing with addiction when you first when, when did you first go into recovery and what was sort of the tennis the tennis community's response what was the atp's response they didn't know they didn't you didn't atp didn't know um, there wasn't a program I, where you could voluntarily and that was the thing the fear of being found out there were contracts that were associated with it you know if i had cancer they'd have probably had a parade for me um you know the the disease of addiction and alcoholism and and dependency Today, we have way more information than we did then. Um, I privately went to a treatment provider in Minnesota, and I barely lasted three days. And um, I just didn't think that I was there 
my roommate had much bigger problems. And it wasn't until I saw another athlete on TV who was a coach of the 76ers, he's number one draft pick in the NBA, and he was in long-term recovery, and I identified what, with what he felt, what he went through. I identified with his feelings of while, while he played, what led him to this and when he lost control. And I actually reached out to him, a cold call to uh, this guy uh, who I didn't know, and he actually played tennis at Maryland, yeah. uh, John sure. Lucas. Sure. And... Uh, and Luke, I mean, I can't tell you how much I love that man. And I called him at a treatment center. And it wasn't the five-star uh, Hollywood ritzy treatment center. It was ghetto rehab. I've been there. In Have Houston, you? Houston, Texas. Yeah. Sure. I was then there. It was around Thanksgiving time at the end of the calendar tour year. And um, he says, get in here, buddy. I can help you. I'll help you out. And he picked me up at the airport. And I was bloodied and beaten down. And I was a mess. And he put me through a detox. And um, spent 30 days there. And I remember feeling so low, missing Thanksgiving with the family. When, when, when is this, roughly? 98, right, so 99. So in um, theory, this is, you're, you're still a pro tennis player. Yeah. 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 And um, I got out of there and had to play a world team tennis semifinals. Um, two weeks later, I had to you know, get back on the courts and... I walk out and, um, but I think, you know, these points along the way to discovering that I've got to be all in, um, was here I'm serving Thanksgiving dinner or I've actually, I wasn't serving. I was being served, uh, by people that are donating their time to um, this treatment center that people of low income families and whatnot. And I went to this rehab and the in the middle of Houston, and um, and I remember getting my meal, and how am I different? Than the, you know, and I got this Rolex watch on, and I'm being served a meal because I'm that sick, and I'm alone, and uh, I hated myself. And you do your stint. I mean, the, the irony is John, John Lucas himself played world team tennis. Yeah. But you, you do your 30 days and then you're back to playing world team tennis. And back in playing world I, team are tennis. You, I think I've got this thing under control or... Yeah, I mean, I get out. I absolutely not thought... Did, I absolutely didn't think I had it under control. Um, I walk out those doors and the fear sets in because you, you really don't have a aftercare plan you don't have a outpatient activity you and i go and play these matches but i'm still i'm the disease is in full effect you know just because i'm i've detoxed and i'm 30 days clean i have no tools i don't have any support i have no community recovery community behind me i have no you know therapist or counselor any of that stuff going on it was back to the tour back to the grind I th- we may have made the finals. I mean, we were working so much that I had no time to even think where I was, where I was going, and actually map it out. And I think, you know, the world of recovery has changed a ton. There's outpatient, there's sober living, there's so many aftercare programs because that's where it really comes in. Don't you love that music? This is France yeah, at its best. We'll, we'll do a disclaimer about the uh, <laughs> the background noise, but don't let that distract no, you from your uh, I like it. travel log here. 
Um, was there? Did, did you hit rock bottom at some point? And was there looking back? Is there a low moment yeah, you point to? Yeah, the rock bottom was uh, U.S. Open '99. Um, the the birth of my son was about to take place. I'm playing the tournament. He's born. I lose somewhere in the draw, and his Billy's mom, you know, isn't too interested in seeing me. Um, we had broken up, and everything leading to that point, um, I have a... I, mean, I can't even call it a relapse then, because I wasn't doing any work for my recovery. You know, recovery is about taking yeah, some action right, and working yeah. with others and, and right. doing, doing uh, you know, having a program. I had no program. And uh, with the feelings that I was going through with a baby being born, uh, you know, it was it was absolutely a run of runs where I was unrecognizable to myself. I'd walk into a place and they'd ask me to leave because I was, I was such a mess in New York. And um, I somehow got to Los Angeles, you know, I'd say October 1st. And I'm staying at a hotel on Sunset Strip. And, you know, the the run continued. I wasn't one of those drinkers or users that... You know, oh, I drank every day for 25 years. I was a periodic binge drinker, and um, and the drinking led to to substance abuse, and um, and with that, I'm at a hotel for almost 10, 12 days, and and wasn't allowed to see my son, and you know, I'm like, what's the point, you know, and um, another run in Los Angeles led to the manager of a hotel calling my room and coming by, his name's Rod, and he's like, hey, you know, I, I think you, you're in trouble. You know, I'd stepped on a shot glass and sliced my foot, and it was pretty bloody and ugly, and I ended up in an emergency room in Beverly Hills, and um, he said, well, would you be willing to meet an interventionist I can have come over? And I said, sure, and this guy Steve came over and told me his story, and he shared with me what he thought of where I was at. And um, when I got out, he asked me if I'd be willing to go to a detox in Culver City. And I said, yes. I said, can you pick me? Can we? And he says, when would you like to? Can, he said, can I pick you up tomorrow at noon? And I said, sure. And um, he said, at the rate I was going, I might have 12 hours to live. Um, 12 from hours. the time he picked me up. And... Um, and I luckily got help and there ironically a Dr. Murphy at this hospital and after seven days with him he said hey would you be willing to live in a sober living house uh, for, a, for a year or you know following this and, and I said sure, abs- sure I was willing to take any direction and do anything that was you know asked of me and I uh, I did it and here I was playing the Australian Open and I got a sober living house. I go from a five-star Sunset Strip rock and roll fancy hotel to living in sober living with alcoholics and addicts. And you know what the funny thing is, John? It's the first time in my life I felt safe and protected. And In that sober living house? Oh my God. It, it it was a game changer because I was with, I wasn't alone. There are other people like me that were just trying to get another twenty four hours. There are people like me and maybe just trying to get five minutes. And 
you know, that were in, you know, much worse situations, but same situation. We had the same stuff going on. We had the same problem, you know. All this other stuff doesn't matter if I don't take care of this. And the guys on the tour and your brother and your mm -hmm. family, I mean, you're living this... You know, sounds like like leaving Las Vegas yeah. vendors and, and lifestyle yeah. and hotel rooms. You show up to the Australian Open and you suspect people know what the last sixty days have been like for you, or you think it's they here's don't. here's Rock and Roll Murphy mm -hmm. and let's nobody knew actually, which is you know even at that time except for my brother obviously. Um, and what was really cool is I brought my dad down there with me and here I'm playing the Australian Open and in Sydney I'm we're taking an A and A meeting. Uh, I really don't want to say that, but I'm going to support um, group meetings and um, going to meetings, doing what I got to do day at a time. And um, taking now I've got a, a plan of action. Now I've got outpatient. Now I've got a, I know I got to play a bed back in Culver City with all my stuff. And I got 20 other guys living in this house that. You know, I'm checking in with either via email at that time, it's, you know, 1999, and um, get back to LA. I continue doing this work. I now have a huge support system, and I ended up living in Los Angeles, moving to Los Angeles, and and uh, staying clean and sober for a while. How, how long have you been clean and sober now? I saw, uh, I saw the, uh, you know, the... Yeah, you know 11 the years. Yeah. 11 years, actually, June 1st of this month. And from that time leaving, I was three and a half years uh, clean and sober, and I had a relapse. And um, I say it a lot, you know, I didn't understand the severity of the situation, and I didn't... I don't know if it was lack of motivation or of lack of understanding of what the process of being free of an addictive mind was and I hadn't gone through the process that was going to free me from the obsession, the mental obsession to drink and use and the physical cravings and even though the, the, the system, the drugs or alcohol is out of my system I'm still running around with uh, the guilt and the shame and, and oh, the and mind. The, and the brain chemistry, right? I mean you're... Absolutely. And 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 just being part of a support group and without going through a, a certain amount of therapy and, and things like that and to that's going to relieve me of the obsession to drink and use it's going to relieve and rewire the brain you know i was still walking around with an alcoholic head even though and so i relapsed and then it was here in paris in 1999 not, not uh, 2006 that I wasn't crash landing into a treatment center, and I wasn't, um, things on the outside were actually going really well, and my jumping off place was, I knew I couldn't drink and use, that I was going to die, and here I was dying emotionally, and I was miserable, um, not drinking and using, that's a jumping off place, now if you really think about what that means, that means like, can't, I can't, can't live in my skin, I can't win. So I got a random email from like a life coach that said, do you want to have the best summer, summer of your life? I answer, answered this questionnaire and a friend and producer that worked at Tennis Channel, he and I decided to do this thing together and he was going to support me with it. And, and we did this and I called someone back in Los Angeles that I respected with a lot of uh, years in recovery 
and uh, I was I I got the most important um, key uh, to recovery, and that's willingness. And I was willing to do anything suggested. And when it was suggested that I I do some work and that I had some some work beyond just having a community, when I was willing to do that, and I went deep, I went big into this. And it became the, the centerpiece of my life, it still is. And I did this work, and it's unbelievable. I have I have zero desire, zero thoughts, and in a way, Carl Jung, this crazy psychiatrist, says that a psychic change is necessary to be relieved of addiction. I, without question, You've feel I've been shot out of a cannon, and um, in a way that not a crusader. I'm just a dude. No better, no worse than anybody else. I'm comfortable in my skin. I'm not afraid of my shadow. You know, fear, thousands of fears are what riddles the alcoholic, is what I've learned. And the fear of the future and my behavior, the past, I've cleaned up the wreckage. And with that, today I walk the earth a free person. Tell me about the technology component. Oh my God, it's actually divine, interve- divine intervention. Um, I am the co-founder of a healthcare technology company that's designed to prevent relapse from drug and alcohol addiction. And uh, Murphy Jensen's gone tech, and it's called We Connect Recovery. Um, I was being of service and helping someone coming out of treatment, and I was introduced to a gal who was really, really bright, who designed the wireframes <clears throat> for technology for that purpose. And um, together we formed a partnership and yeah, along with the, our chief product designer, Jen Mallory, and the three of us have a company that launched in December and we're, uh, we're helping insurance companies, healthcare systems, treatment center providers, and what we have is a digital aftercare. It's a uh, when you leave say, treatment. We'll, we'll, we'll link this so people can see it. Yeah. It's basically, won't you? Yeah, it's uh, you know, basically it's the it's the recovery framework. It's a management system. So when you leave, like I did in Houston, instead of a piece of paper with your recovery activities for you to do while you know you roam the earth. You know, if you go to treatment in Minnesota and you go back to Boston, your first 90 days is mapped out to a T. Not only does it tell you when, where, how, and who you need to see, who you need to connect, and the two leading drivers to relapse is lack of accountability and lack of connection and support just in time. You add your support uh, network before you ever leave treatment. It's really the bridge from a treatment facility or a treatment provider to long-term recovery. And it gives you all the tools necessary because people leaving treatment, you know, the, we've got a couple of things going on here. Outcomes data, we, we provide for treatment centers. Um, we, we track the data of, and more importantly, keep you connected with, if you're leaving treatment with your counselor, your treatment center, your your alumni, your support network, and we show you where you need to go, what you need to do with explicit direction. There's an SOS feature that allows you. And what's really fun is like, why would I engage in this this product? Well, 
through engaging in this product, we, we, we've created a reward system. You accumulate points. The more I accumulate, more points accumulate, the more um, activities, recovery activities. And recovery activities could be anything, anything that deal with uh, body, mind, and spirit. Physically, I'm doing yoga once a day. Uh, spiritually, I'm hitting my knees and praying and meditating and whatever else. Um, uh, you find meetings. You know, Murphy you, Jensen goes to Paris. Me- yeah, there's can- meeting finders. Uh, there's a meeting. Actually, well, there's not a meeting finder yet. But if you and that's a feature that's coming. What's really exciting is that we're dealing with we're, we're working with um, Metal Lab. They are the premier interface design firm that. Uh, that design Slack, Uber, Facebook applications, and the many Apple applications, and they are our interface design firm that, you know, following a 15-week uh, uh, engagement, you know, we will absolutely have the best-in-class um, And the, the facilities have access to this data too, right? What? Yeah, absolutely. So I can say, hey, you know, I'm your counselor, mm-hmm. and I, I, love, I love Murphy Jensen, but boy, I'm seeing here he's only... Yeah, so, so the how it really works is if you're leaving treatment, let's say I'm, if it's my son or my counselor, you're able to you get accelerometers, and if my if my recovery activities drop below seventy percent, if you're in my support network, John, you're going to get a notification that Murphy. It's been three days since Murphy's uh, participated in his recovery. You might want to reach safe, out to him and right. see what's going on. So we've actually, with peer review research in our studies, we've been able to track and and. and show treatment centers that this population is at high risk of relapse and it's actually proven true and this is a really big deal producing outcomes data for treatment centers that then they can go to insurance companies and say like we're winning here you know we can identify people at risk we can uh, improve outcomes and and more importantly you know You've got, you know, the, the, the smartphone has changed the world on so many levels. And this is just a, a, a platform where the smartphone phone is going to help someone leaving treatment, give them the support and the tools they need to, have, to get to long-term recovery. So what do, you want, uh, what do you want people to know? I mean, here we are. It's, it's 24 years uh, since mm. you won this thing. You've had a hell Jeez. of a journey. I mean, what, what's... If you're listening to this, what should be the Murphy Jensen takeaway here? Wow, man. What have, you, what have you learned about yourself? What do you, what do you want people out there to know about where Murphy you are Jensen? In, well, in June of uh, so 2017? Murphy, you know, I don't know. You know, if this, if, if what I'm going, if what's going on or my story can help one person, one person, one, dude, you know, I, I get a hundred emails a day from folks. Can you help my brother? Can you help my son? Um, you know, I, I feel that there is beyond meaning and purpose in my life, and my purpose today is to help others. My purpose today is, um, you know, I, 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 without sounding corny, um, John, in my head, it's like, I, we all wonder what we're born to do. And I've discovered that I was born to serve. And what in whatever capacity that is. When I worked for the Tennis Channel, my job was to help anybody and anything on the production set. You know, you got the camera guy and he's got his bags. I'm helping. I'll carry that stuff. While I'm coaching Serena Williams in the, the Washington Castles, I'm there to serve. I'm there to help. And by 
coming from that place, I get all my needs met. I, I, I succeed beyond my wildest dream. And I think if there was any message that I could share is that there is another side to addiction. There is another side and it's possible. And when you're dying. So um, there is hope and there's help and uh, that I love it. If you're hurting out there, um, I'm praying for you. Glad we did this. Thanks, John. Really grateful. We'll stay in touch. Humbled. You got it, man. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to our producer, Jamie Lasanti. Thanks most of all to to Murphy Jensen. That was uh, a a candid 45 minutes, a little different from uh, what we usually do. But Murphy has a a great story to tell, and um, it's great to see him. Great to see him doing well. That will uh, that will do it for this week. Again, thanks everyone for listening. Keep the suggestions coming. You can uh, get this on iTunes, Stitcher. Follow us on. Uh, do we have a Facebook page for this? We're no. no. We're we'll we'll start a Facebook page. Um, but uh, we'll have another guest next week. Uh, Kim Clysters is going to come by. We have um, a a current player who has agreed to spend some time with us. But keep your suggestions coming. They are they're always appreciated and excellent. And um, have a good week, everyone. We will do this again in seven days. Take care.